Whisper Halloween special. I'm Isa, and we have four nights left till Halloween as we continue the story of Dracula. We last left off, Dr. Seward observing a mysterious mental patient. Mina has gotten word of Jonathan's safety in Budapest. The shape-shifting Dracula has arrived to England undetected, and some weird stuff is happening to Lucy. So lock your doors, ignore the large bat flapping madly outside your window, and let's keep going.
when he woke up, he asked me for his coat, as he wanted to get something from the pocket. I asked Sister, Ag Sister Agatha, and she brought all his things. I saw that amongst them was his notebook, and was going to ask him to let me look at it, for I knew then that I might find some clue to his trouble. But I suppose he must have seen my wish in my eyes, for he sent me over to the window, saying he wanted to be quite alone for a moment. Then he called me back, and when I came, he had his hand over the notebook, and he said to me very solemnly, Wilhelmina. I knew then that he was in deadly earnest, for he has never called me by that name since he asked me to marry him. You know, dear, my ideas of the trust between husband and wife, there should be no secret, no concealment. I have had a great shock, and when I try to think of what it is, I feel my head spin round, and I do not know if it was all real or the dreaming of a madman. You know, I have had brain fever, and that is to be mad. The secret is here. each other, that I would never open it, unless it were for 
now so far quieted 
cessation from his p passion. For the first week after his attack, he was perpetually violent. Then one night, just as the moon rose, he grew quiet and kept murmuring to himself, Now I can wait, now I can wait. The attendant came to me, so I ran down at once to have a look at him. He was still in the straight waistcoat and in, in the padded room, but the suffused look had gone from his face, and his eyes had something of their old pleading, I might almost say cringing softness. I was satisfied with his present condition, and directed him to be relieved. The attendants hesitated, but finally carried out my wishes without protest. It was a strange thing the patient had humor enough to see their distrust for coming close to me he said in a whisper all the while looking furtively at them they think I could hurt you fancy me hurting you the fools it was soothing somehow to the feelings to find myself dissociated even in the mind of this poor madman from the others but all the same I do not follow thought. Am I to take it that I have anything in common with him so that we are, as it were, to stand together? Or has he to gain from me some good so stupendous that my well-being is needful to him? I must find out later on. Tonight he will not speak. Even the offer of a kitten or even a full-grown cat will not tempt him. He will only say, I don't take any stock in cats. I have more to think of now, and I can wait, I can wait. After a while, I left him. The attendant tells me that he was quiet until just before dawn, and that then he began to get uneasy, and at length violent, until at last he fell into a paroxysm which exhausted him so that he swooned into a sort of coma. As the same thing happened, violent all day, then quiet from moonrise to sunrise. I wish I could get some clue to the cause. It would almost seem as if there was some influence which came and went. Happy thought. We shall tonight play sane wits against the mad ones. He escaped before without our help. Tonight he shall escape with it. We shall give him a chance and have the men ready to follow in case they are required. 23rd of August. The unexpected always happens. How well does Rayleigh knew life. Our bird, when he found the cage open, would not fly. So all our subtle arrangements went for naught. At any rate, we have proved one thing. The spells of quietness 
see the usual anemic signs, and by a chance I was actually able to test the quality of her blood for an opening a window which was stiff. A cord gave way and she cut her hand slightly with a broken glass. It was a slight matter in itself, but it gave me an evident chance, and I secured a few drops of the blood and have analyzed them. The qualitative analysis gives a quite normal condition and shows, I should infer in itself, a vigorous state of health. In other physical matters, I was quite satisfied that there is no need for anxiety, but as there must be a cause somewhere, I have come to the conclusion that it must be something mental. She complains of difficulty in breathing, satisfactorily as th at times, and of heavy lethargic sleep with dreams that frighten her, but regarding which she can remember nothing. She says that as a child she used to walk in her sleep, and that when in Whitby the habit came back, and that once she walked out into the night and went to the East Cliff where Miss Murray found her. But as, but she assured me that of late the habit has not returned. I am in doubt, and so I've done the best thing I know of. I have written to my old friend and master, Professor Van Helsing of Amsterdam, who knows as much about obscure diseases as anyone in the world. I have asked him to come over, and as you told me that all things were to be at your charge, I have mentioned to him who you are and your relations to Miss Westenra. This, my dear fellow, is only in obedience to your wishes, for I am only too proud and happy to do anything I can for her. Van Helsing would, I know, do anything for me for a personal reason. So, no matter on what ground he comes, we must accept his wishes. He is a seemingly arbitrary man, but this is because he knows what he is talking about better than anyone else. He is a philosopher and a metaphysician, and one of the most advanced scientists of his day, and he has, I believe, an absolutely open mind. This, with an iron nerve, a temper of the icebrook, an indomitable resolution, self-command, and toleration exalted from virtues to blessings, and the kindliest and truest heart that beats. These form his equipment for the noble work that he is doing for mankind, both work and theory and practice, for his views are as wide as his all-embracing sympathy. I tell you these facts that you may know why I have such confidence in him. I have asked him to come at once. I shall see Miss Westenra tomorrow again. She is to meet me at the stores so that I may not alarm her mother by too early a repetition of my call. Yours always, John Seward. Letter, Abraham Van Helsing, medical doctor, philosophy doctor, doctor of letters, etc., etc. To Dr. Seward, 2nd of September. My good friend, when I have received your letter, I am already coming to you. By good fortune, I can leave just at once, without wrong to any of those who have trusted me. 
marks on the edge of the door between the ridges of padding. When he saw me, he came over and apologized for his bad conduct and asked me in a very humble, cringing way to be led back to his own room and to have his notebook again. I thought it well to humor him, so he is back in his room with the window open. He has the sugar of his tea spread out on the windowsill and is reaping quite a harvest of flies. He is not now eating them, but putting them into a box, as of old, and is already examining the corners of his room to find a spider. I tried to get him to talk about the past few days, for any clue to his thoughts would be of immense help to me, but he would not rise. For a moment or two he looked very sad, a sort of faraway voice, as though saying it rather to himself than to me. All over, all over, he has deserted me. No hope for me now, unless I do it for myself. Then suddenly, turning to me in a resolute way, he said, Doctor, won't you be, a ve be very good to me and let me have a little more sugar? I think it would be good for me. I said. Yes, the flies like it too, and I like the flies, therefore I like it. And there are people who know so little as to think that madmen do not argue. I procured him a double supply, and left him as happy a man, a man as, I suppose, any in the world. I wish I could fathom his mind. Midnight. Another change in him. I had been to see Miss Wistenra, whom I found much better, and had just returned, and was standing at her own gate, looking at the sunset, when once more I heard him yelling. As his room is on this side of the house, I could hear it better than in the morning. It was a shock to me to turn from the wonderful smoky beauty of a sunset over London with its lurid lights and inky shadows and all the marvelous tints that come on foul clouds even as on foul water, and to realize all the grim sternness of my own stone, cold stone building, with its wealth of breathing misery, and my own desolate heart to endure it all. I reached him just as the sun was going down, and from his window saw the red disk sink, as it sank, he became less and less frenzied. Just as it dipped, he slid from the hands that held him, an inert mass on the floor. It is wonderful, however, what intellectual recuperative power lunatics have, for within a few minutes he stood up quite calmly and looked around him. I signaled to the attendants not to hold him, for I was anxious to see what he would do. He went straight over to the window and brushed out the crumbs of sugar. Then he took his fly box and emptied it outside, threw away the box. Then he shut the window and, crossing over, sat down on his bed. All this surprised me, so I asked him, Are you not going to keep the flies any more? No, said he. I am sick of all that rubbish. He certainly is a wonderfully interesting study. 
himself the same way. I have for myself thoughts at the present. Later I shall unfold to you. Why not now? I asked. It may do some good. We may arrive at some decision. He stopped and looked at me and said, My friend John, when the corn is grown even before it has ripened, while the milk of its mother earth is in him, and the sunshine has not yet begun to paint him with his gold. The husbandman, he pull the ear and rub him between his rough hands and blow away the green chaff and say to you, Look, he's good corn. He will make a good crop when the time comes. I did not see the application and told him so. For reply, he reached over and took my ear in his hand and pulled it playfully as he used to long ago at his lectures and said, the good husbandman tell you so then, because he, because he knows, but not till then. But you do not find the good husbandman dig up his planted corn to see if he grow, for that is for the children who play at husbandry, and not for those who take it as of the work of their life. See you now, friend John. I have sown my corn, and nature has her work to do in making it sprout. If he sprout at all, there's some promise. Wait till the ear begins to swell. He broke off, for he evidently saw that I understood. Then he went on, and very gravely. You were always a careful student, and your case book was ever more full than the rest. You were only student then. Now you are master, and I trust that good habit have not failed. Remember, my friend, that knowledge is stronger than memory, and we should not trust the weaker. Even if you have not kept the good practice, let me tell you that this case of our dear miss is one that may be, mind I say, may be, of such interest to us and others that all the rest may not make him kick the beam, as your people say. Take then the good note of it. Nothing is too small. I counsel you. Put down in record even your doubts and surmises. Hereafter it may be of interest to you to see how true you guess. We learn from failure, not from success. When I described Lucy's symptoms, the same as before, but infinitely more marked, he looked very grave, but said nothing. He took with him a bag in which were very many instruments and drugs, the ghastly paraphernalia of our beneficial trade, as he once called in one of his lectures, the equipment of a professor of the healing craft. When we were shown in, Mrs. Westenra met us. She was alarmed, but not nearly so much as I expected to find her. Nature, in one of her beneficent moods, has ordained that even death has some antidote to its own terrors. Here, in a case where any shock may prove fatal, matters are so ordered that, from some cause or other, the thing's not personal. Even the terrible change in her daughter, to whom she is so attached, did not seem to reach her. It is something like the way Dame Nature gathers around a foreign body an envelope of some insensitive tissue which can protect from evil that which it would otherwise harm by contact. If this be an ordered selfishness, then we should pause before we condemn anyone for the vice of egoism, for they may there may be deeper roots for its causes than we have knowledge of. I used my knowledge of this phase of spiritual pathology and 
so calm and our blood not so bright than yours. 
which is one of Van Helsing's ways of betraying emotion. He said nothing at the moment, but turned to me, saying, Now take down our brave young lover, give him the port wine, and let him lie down a while. He must then go home and rest, sleep much and eat much, that he may be recruited of what he has given to his love. He must not stay here. Hold a moment. I may take it, sir, that you are anxious of result. Then bring it with you that in all ways the operation is successful. You have saved her life this time, and you can go home and rest easy in mind that all that can be is. I shall tell her all when she is well. She shall love you nonetheless for what you have done. Goodbye. When Arthur had gone, I went back to the room. Lucy was sleeping gently, but her breathing was stronger. I could see the counterpane move as her breast heaved. By the bedside sat Van Helsing, looking at her intently. The velvet band again covered the red mark. I asked the professor in a whisper, What do you make of that mark on her throat? What do you make of it? I have not seen it yet, I answered, and then and there proceeded to loose the band. Just over the external jugular vein there were two punctures, not large, but not wholesome-looking. There was no sign of disease, but the edges were white and worn-looking, as if by some trituration. It had once occurred to me that this wound, or whatever it was, might be the means of that manifest loss of blood, but I abandoned the idea as soon as formed, for such a thing could not be. The whole bed would have been drenched to a scarlet, with blood which the girl must have lost to leave such a pallor as she had before the transfusion. Well, said Van Helsing, well, said I, I can make nothing of it. The professor stood up. I must go back to Amsterdam tonight, he said. There are books and things there which I want. You must remain here all the night, and you must not let your sights pass from her. Shall I have a nurse? I asked. We are the best nurses, you and I. You keep watch all night. See that she is well fed and that nothing disturbs her. You must not sleep all the night. Later on we can sleep, you and I. I shall be back so soon as possible, and then we may begin. May begin, I said. What on earth do you mean? We shall see, he answered as he hurried out. He came back a moment later and put his head inside the door and said, with a warning finger held up, Remember, she is your charge. If you leave her, and harm befall, you shall not sleep easy hereafter. Dr. Seward's diary continued. 8th of September. I sat up all night with Lucy. The opiate worked itself off towards dusk, and she waked naturally. She looked a different being from what she had been before the operation. Her spirits even were good, and she was full of a happy vivacity, but I could see evidences of the absolute prostration which she had undergone. When I told Miss Westenra that Dr. Van Helsing had directed that I should sit up with her, she almost pooh-poohed the idea, pointing out her daughter's renewed strength and excellent spirits. I was firm, however, and made preparations for my long vigil. When her maid had prepared her for the night, I came in 
having in the meantime had supper, and took a seat by the bedside. She did not in any way make objection, but looked at me gratefully whenever I caught her eye. After a long spell she seemed sinking off to sleep, but with an effort seemed to pull herself together and shook it off. This was repeated several times with greater effort and with shorter pauses as the time moved on. It was apparent that she did not want to sleep, so I tackled the subject at once. You do not want to go to sleep? No, I am afraid. Afraid to go to sleep? Why so? Is it the boon we all crave for? Ah, uh, not if you were like me, if sleep was to you like a presage of horror. A presage of horror? What on earth do you mean? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. And that is what is so terrible. All this weakness comes to me in sleep until I dread the very thought. But, my dear girl, you may sleep tonight. I am here watching you, and I can promise that nothing will happen. I can trust you. I seized the opportunity and said, I promise you that if I see any evidence of bad dreams, I will wake you at once. You will. Oh, will you really? How good you are to me. Then I will sleep. And almost at the word, she gave a deep sigh of relief and sank back asleep. All night long I watched by her. She never stirred, but slept on and on in a deep, tranquil, life-giving, health-giving sleep. Her lips were slightly parted, and her breast rose and fell with the regularity of a pendulum. There was a smile on her face, and it was evident that no bad dreams had come to disturb her peace of mind. In the early morning her maid came, and I left her in her care and took myself back home, for I was anxious about many things. I sent a short wire to Van Helsing and to Arthur, telling them of the excellent results of the operation. My own work, with its manifold arrears, took me all day to clear off. It was dark when I was able to inquire about my zoophagus patient. The report was good. He had been quite quiet for the past day and night. A telegram came from Van Helsing at Amsterdam whilst I was at dinner, suggesting that I should be at Willing Hillingham tonight, as it might be well to be at hand, and stating that he was leaving by the night mail and would join me in early morning. 9th of September. I was pretty tired and worn out when I got to Hillingham. For two nights, I had hardly had a wink of sleep my brain was beginning to feel that numbness which marks cerebral exhaustion. Lucy was up and in cheerful spirits. When she shook hands with me, she looked sharply in my face and said, No sitting up tonight for you. You are worn out. I am quite well again, indeed I am, and if there is to be any sitting up, it is I who will sit up with you. I would not argue the point, but went and had my supper. Lucy came with me and, enlivened by her charming presence, I made an excellent meal, and had a couple of glasses of the more than excellent port. Then Lucy took me upstairs and showed me a room next to her own, where a cozy fire was burning. Now, she said, you must stay here. I shall leave this door open and my door too. You can lie on the sofa, for I know that nothing 
sleeve. There was no possibility of an opiate just at present, and no need of one, and so, without a moment's delay, we began the operation. After a time, it did not seem a short time either, for the draining away of one's blood, no matter how willingly it be given, is a terrible feeling. Van Helsing held up a warning finger. Do not stir, he said, but I fear that with growing strength she may wake, and that would make danger, oh, so much danger, but I shall precaution take. I shall give hypodermic injection of morphia. He proceeded then swiftly and deftly to carry out his intent. The effect on Lucy was not bad, for the faint seemed to emerge subtly into the into the narcotic sleep. It was with a feeling of personal pride that I could see a faint tinge of color steal back into the pallid cheeks and lips. No man knows till he experiences it, experiences it, what it is to feel his own life blood drawn away into the veins of the woman he loves. The professor watched me critically. That will do, he said. Already, I remonstrated. You took a great deal more from art. To which he smiled, a sad sort of smile, as he replied, He is her lover, her fiancé. You have work, much work, to do for her and for others, and the present will suffice. When we stopped the operation, he attended to Lucy. Whilst I applied digital pressure to my own incision, I lay down whilst I waited his leisure to attend to me, for I felt faint and a little sick. By and by, he bound up my wound and sent me downstairs to get a glass of wine for myself. As I was leaving the room, he came after me and half whispered, Mind, nothing must be said of this. If our young lover should turn up unexpected as before, no word to him. It would at once frighten him and jealous him too. There must be none. So, when I came back, he looked at me carefully and then said, You are not much the worse. Go to th go into the room and lie on your sofa and rest a while. Then have much breakfast and come here to me. I followed out his orders, for I knew how right and wise they were. I had done my part, and now my next duty was to keep up my strength. I felt very weak, and in the weakness I lost something of the amazement at what had occurred. I fell asleep on the sofa, however, wondering over and over again how Lucy had made such a retrograde movement, and how she could have been drained of so much blood with no sign anywhere to show for it. I think I must have continued my wonder in my dreams, for sleeping and waking, my thoughts always came back to the little punctures in her throat and the ragged, exhausted appearance of their edges, tiny though they were. Lucy slept well into the day, and when she awoke, she was fairly well and strong, though not nearly so much so as the day before. When Van Helsing had seen her, he went out for a walk, leaving me in charge with strict and injunctions that I was not to leave her for a moment. I could hear his voice in the hall asking the way to the nearest telegraph office. Lucy chatted with me freely and seemed quite unconscious that anything had happened. I tried to keep her amused and interested. When her mother came up to see her, 
said to me gratefully. We owe you so much, Dr. Seward, for all you have done, but you really must now take care not to overwork yourself. You are looking pale yourself. You want a wife to nurse and look after you a bit, that you do. As she spoke, Lucy turned crimson, for it was only momentarily, for her poor wasted veins could not stand for long such an unwanted drain to the head. The reaction came in excessive pallor as she turned imploring eyes on me. I smiled and nodded, and laid my finger on my lips with a sigh. She sh sank back amid her pillows. Van Helsing returned in a couple of hours and presently said to me, Now you go home and eat much and drink enough. Make yourself strong. I stay here tonight and I shall sit up with the miss myself. You and I must watch the case. We must not have none other to know. I have grave reasons. No, do not ask them. Think what you will. Do not fear to think even the most not probable. Good night. In the hall, two of the maids came to me and asked if they or either of them might not sit up with Miss Lucy. They implored me to let them, and when, I, and when it was Dr. Van Helsing's wish that either he or I sit up, they asked me quite piteously to intercede with the foreign gentleman. I was much touched by their kindness. Perhaps it is because I am weak at present, and because it was on Lucy's account their devotion was manifested, for over and over again I have seen similar instances of women's kindness. I got back in here, I got back here in time for late dinner, went my rounds, all well, and set this down whilst waiting for sleep. It is coming. 11th of September. This afternoon I went over to Hillingham, found Van Helsing in excellent spirits, and Lucy much better. Shortly after I had arrived, a big parcel from abroad came for the professor. He opened it with much impressment, assumed, of course, and showed a great bundle of white flowers. These are for you, Miss Lucy, he said. For me, oh, Dr. Van Helsing. Yes, my dear, but not for you to play with. These are medicines. Here, Lucy, made a wry face. Nay, but they are not to take in a decoction or a nauseous form, so you need not snub that so charming nose, or I shall point out to my friend Arthur what woes he may have to endure in seeing so much beauty that he loves so much distort. Ah, my pretty miss, that bring the so nice nose all straight again. This is medicinal. Sing rose up and said with all his sternness, 
His iron jaws set in his bushy eyebrows meeting. No trifling with me. I never jest. There is grim purpose in all I do, and I warn you that you do not thwart me. Take care for the sake of others, if not for your own. Then, seeing poor Lucy scared, as she might well be, he went on more gently. Oh, little miss, my dear, do not fear me. I only do for your good. But there is much virtue to you in those so common flower. See, I place them myself in your room. I make myself the wreath that you are to wear. But hush, no telling to others that make so inquisitive questions. We must obey, and silence is a part of obedience. And obedience is to bring you strong and well into the loving arms that wait for you. Now sit still a while. Come with me, friend John, and you shall help me deck the room with my garlic, which is all the way from Harlem, where my friend Vanderpool raise herb in his glass houses all the year. I had to telegraph yesterday, or they would not have been here. He went into the room, taking the flowers with us. The professor's actions were certainly odd and not to be found in any pharmacopoeia that I had ever heard of. First, he fastened up the windows and latched them securely. Next, taking a handful of the flowers, he rubbed them all over the sashes, as, a, as though to ensure that every whiff of air that might get in would be laden with the garlic smell. Then with the wisp, he rubbed all over the jam of the door, above, below, and at each side, and round the fireplace in the same way. It all seemed grotesque to me, and presently I said, Well, Professor, I know you always have a reason for what you do, but this certainly puzzles me. It is well we have no skeptic here, or he would say that you were working some spell to keep out an evil spirit. Perhaps I am, he answered quietly, as he began to make the wreath which Lucy was to wear around her neck. We then wait, waited whilst Lucy made her toilet for the night, and when she was in bed, he came and himself fixed the wreath of garlic around her neck. The last words he said to her were, Take care, you do not disturb it, and even if the room feel close, do not tonight open the said Lucy, and thank you both a thousand times for all your kindness to me. Oh, what have I done to be blessed with such friends? As we left the house in my fly, which was waiting, Van Helsing said, Tonight I can sleep in peace, and sleep I want. Two nights of travel, much reading in the day between, and much anxiety on the day to follow, and a night to sit up without to wink. Tomorrow in the morning, early, you call for me, and we come together to see our pretty miss, so much more strong for my spell, which I have work. Oh, oh, oh. He seemed so confident that I, remembering my own confidence two nights before, and with the painful result, felt awe and vague terror. It must have been my weakness that made me hesitate to tell it to my friend, but I felt it all the more unshed tears.
Lucy was Stenra's diary, 12th of September. How good they all are to me. I quite love that dear Dr. Van Helsing. I wonder why he was so anxious about these flowers. He positively frightened me, he was so fierce. And yet he must have been right, for I feel comfort from them already. Somehow, I do not dread being alone at night, and I can go to sleep without fear. I shall not mind any flapping outside the window. Oh, the terrible struggle that I have had against sleep so often of late, the pain of the sleeplessness or the pain of the fear of sleep, with such unknown horrors as it has for me. How blessed are some people whose lives have no fears, no dreads, to whom sleep is a blessing that comes nightly and brings nothing but sweet dreams. Well, here I am tonight, hoping for sleep, and lying like Ophelia in the play, with virgin crowns and maiden strumments. I never liked garlic before, but tonight it is delightful. There is peace in its smell. I feel sleep coming already. Good night, everybody. Dr. Seward's Diary, 13th of September. Called at the Berkeley and found Van Helsing, as usual, up to time. The carriage ordered from the hotel was waiting. The professor took his bag, which he always brings with him now. Let all be put down exactly. Van Helsing and I arrived at Hillingham at eight o'clock. It was a lovely morning. The bright sunshine and all the fresh feeling of early autumn seemed like the completion of nature's annual work. The leaves were turning to all kinds of beautiful colors, but had not yet begun to drop from the trees. When we entered, we met Mrs. Westenra coming out of the morning room. She is always an early riser. She greeted us warmly and said, you will be glad to know that Lucy is better. The dear child is still asleep. I looked into her room and saw her, but did not go in, lest I should disturb her. The professor smiled and looked quite jubilant. He rubbed his hands together and said, Ah, I thought I had diagnosed the case. My treatment is working. To which she answered, you must not take all the credit to yourself, Doctor. Lucy's state this morning is due in part to me. How do you mean, ma'am? asked the professor. Well, I was anxious about the dear child in the night and went into her room. She was sleeping soundly, so soundly that even my coming did not wake her. But the room was awfully stuffy, and there were a lot of those horrible, strong-smelling flowers about everywhere. And she had actually a bunch of them around her neck. I feared that the heavy odor would be too much for the dear child in her weak state, so I took them all away and opened a bit of the window to let in a little fresh air. You will be pleased with her, I am sure. She moved off into her boudoir, where she usually breakfasted early. As she had spoken, I watched the professor's face as it turned ashen gray. He had been able to retain his self-command whilst the poor lady was present for he knew her state and how mischievous a shock would be. He actually smiled on her as he held open the door for her to pass into her room. But the instant she had disappeared, he pulled me suddenly and forcibly into the dining room and closed the door. Then, for the first time in my life, I saw Van Helsing break down. <laughs>
his hands over his head in a sort of mute despair and then beat his palms together in a helpless way. Finally, he sat down on a chair and putting his hands before his face began to sob with loud, dry sobs that seemed to come from the very racking of his heart. Then he raised his arms again as though appealing to the whole universe. God, 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 he said, what have we done? What has this poor thing done that we are so sore beset? Is there fate amongst us still, sent down from the pagan world of old, that such things must be and in such way? This poor mother, all unknowing, and all for the best as she think, does such thing as lose her daughter, body and soul, and we must not tell her, we must not even warn her, or she die, and then both die. Oh, how we are beset! How are all the powers of the devils against us? Suddenly, he jumped to his feet. Come, he said, come, we must see and act. Devils are no devils. For all the devils at once, it matters not. We fight them all the same. He went to the hall door for his bag, and together we went up to Lucy's room. Once again, I drew up the blind, whilst Van Helsing went towards the bed. This time he did not start, as he looked on the poor face with the same awful waxen pallor as before. He wore a look of stern sadness and infinite pity. As I expected, he murmured, with that hissing inspiration of his which meant so much. Without a word, he went and locked the door, and then began to set out on the little table the instruments for yet another operation of transfusion of blood. I had long ago recognized the necessity and begun to take off my coat, but he stopped me with a warning hand. No, he said, today you must operate. I shall provide. You are weakened already. As he spoke, he took off his coat and rolled up his shirt sleeve. Again the operation. Again the narcotic. Again some return of color to the ashy cheeks and the regular breathing of healthy sleep. This time I watched whilst Van Helsing recruited himself and rested. Presently he took an opportunity of telling Mrs. Westenra that she must not remove anything from Lucy's room without consulting him, that the flowers were of medicinal value, and that the breathing of their odor was a part of the system of cure. Then he took over the care of the case himself, saying that he would watch this night and the next and would send me word when to come. After another hour, Lucy waked from her sleep, fresh and bright and seemingly not much the worse for her terrible ordeal. What does it all mean? I'm beginning to wonder if my long habit of life amongst the insane is beginning to tell upon my own brain. Lucy Westenra's Diary, 17th of September Four days and nights of peace. I am getting so strong again that I hardly know myself. It is as if I had passed through some long nightmare and had just awakened to see the beautiful sunshine feel the fresh air of the morning around me. I have a dim half-remembrance of long anxious times of waiting and fearing, darkness in which there was not even the pain of hope 
and asking of me questions about my business, and I that grumpy like, that only for your bloomin' arf quid. I'd a seen you blowed fust, first for I'd answer, not even when you arsed me sarcastic like if I'd like you to arse the superintendent, if you might ask me questions. Without offense did I tell her to go to hell. You did. And when you said you'd report me for using of obscene language, that was hitting me over the head, but the arf grid made all that all right. I weren't a-going to fight, so I waited for the food, and did with my owl as the wolves and lions and tigers does. But, Lord love your heart, now that the old human had, human had stuck a chunk of her tea cake in me, and rinsed me out with her bloomin' old teapot, I've lit up. You may scratch my ears for all you're worth and won't get even a growl out of me. Drive along with your questions. I know what you're coming at. That there escaped wolf. Exactly. I want you to give me your view of it. Just tell me how it happened. And when I know the facts, I'll get you to say what you consider was the cause of it and how you think the whole affair will end. This here is about the old story. That here wolf, what we call Bersiger, was one of these gray ones that came from Norway to Jamrocks, which we bought off him four years ago. He was a nice, well-behaved wolf that never gave no trouble to talk of. I'm more surprised at him for wanting to get out, nor any other animal in the place. But there you can't trust wolves no more than women. Don't you mind him, sir, broke in with Mrs. Tom with a cheery laugh. He's got mind in the animals so long that blessed if he ain't like old wolf himself. But there ain't no harm in him. Well, sir, it was about two hours after feeding yesterday when I first heard any disturbance. I was making up a litter in the monkey house for a young puma, which is ill. But when I heard the yelping and howling, I came away straight. There was Bersiker, a tearing like a mad thing at the bars as if he wanted to get out. There wasn't much people about that day, and close at hand was only one man, a tall, thin chap with a look nose pointed beard with a few white hairs running through it. He had a hard, cold look and red eyes, and I took a sort of mislike to him, for it seemed as if it was him as they were irritated at. He had white kid gloves on and his hands, and he pointed out the animals to me and says, Keeper, these wolves seem upset at something. Maybe it's you, says I, for I did not like the airs as he give himself. He didn't get angry, as I hoped he would, but he smiled a kind of insolent smile with a mouthful of white, sharp teeth. Oh no, they wouldn't like me, he says. 
Oh, yes, they would, says I, imitating of him. They always likes a bone or two to clean their teeth on about tea time, which you has a bag full. Well, it was a odd thing, but when the animals see us a-talking, they lay down. And when I went over to Persicker, he let me stroke his ears, same as ever. That there man came over, and blessed if he didn't put his hand and stroke the old wolf's ears, too. Take care, says I. Persicker is quick. Never mind, he says. I used to him. Are you in the business yourself? I says, taking off my hat for a man what trades in wolves. Ansiter is a good friend to keepers. No, says he, not exactly in the business, but I have made pets of several. And with that he lifts his hat, his hat has perlite as a lord, as perlite as a lord, and walks away. Old Bersiger kept looking harder in till he was out of sight, and then went and lay down in a corner, and wouldn't come out the whole evening. Well, last night, so soon as the moon was up, the wolves here all began howling. There weren't nothing for him to howl at. There weren't no one near, except someone that was evidently a-calling a dog somewheres out back of the gardens in the park road. Once or twice I went out to see that wall was right, and it was, and then the howling stopped. Just before twelve o'clock I just took a look around before turning in, and bust me when, but when I came opposite to old Bersiker's cage, I see the rails broken and twisted about, and the cage empty, and that's all I know for certain. Did anyone else see anything? One of our gardeners was a-coming home around that time from Harmony, and when he sees a big gray dog coming out through the garden edges, at least, so he says, but I don't give much for it myself, for if he did, he never said a word about it to his missus when he got home, and it was only after the escape of the wolf was made known, and we had been up all night a-hunting of the park for Bersiker, that he remembered seeing anything. My own belief was that the harmony had got into his head. Now, Mr. Builder, can you account in any way for the escape of the wolf? Well, sir, he said with a suspicious sort of modesty, I think I can, but I don't know as how you be satisfied with the theory. Certainly I shall, if a man like you, who knows the animals from experience, can't hazard a good guess at any rate, who is even to try. Well then, sir, I accounts for it this way. It seems to me that here Wolf escaped simply because he wanted to get out. From the hearty way that both Thomas and his wife laughed at the joke, I could see that it had done service before, and that the whole explanation was simply an elaborate sell. I couldn't cope in badinage with the worthy Thomas, but 
I thought I knew a sure way to his heart, so I said, Now, Mr. Builder, we'll consider that first half sovereign worked off, and this brother of his is waiting to be claimed when you've told me what you think will happen. Right you are, sir, he said briskly. He'll excuse me, I know, for chaffing of you, but the old woman here winked at me, much, which was as much as telling me to go on. Well, I never, said the old lady. My opinion is this, that their wolf is idling of somewheres. The gardener wanted remember said he was a galloping northward faster than a horse could go. But I don't believe him, for you see, sir, wolves don't gallop no more, nor dogs does. They not being built that way. Wolves is fine things in a storybook, and I did say when they gets in packs, and does be jivying something that's more feared than they is, they can make a devil of noise and chop it up, whatever it is. But, Lord bless you, in real life, a wolf is only a low creature, not half so clever or bold as a good dog, and not half a quarter so much fighting him. This one ain't been used to fighting nor even providing for itself, and more like he's somewhere around the park hiding and shivering if he thinks at all, wondering where he is getting his breakfast from, or maybe he's got down some area and is in a coal cellar. My eye won't some cook get a rum start when he sees his green eyes a-shining at her out of the dark. If he can't get food, he's bound to look for it, and mayhap he may chance to light on a butcher shop in time. If he doesn't, some nursemaid goes a-walking off with a soldier leaving off the hat in the perambulator. Well, then I shouldn't be surprised if the census is one baby the less, that's all. I was handing him the half-sovereign when something came bobbing up against the window, and Mr. Builder's face doubled its natural length with surprise. God bless me, he said, if there ain't old Bersiker come back by himself. He went to the door and opened it. A most unnecessary proceeding, it seemed to me. I've always thought that a wild animal never looks so well as when some obstacle of, uh, of pronounced durability is between us. A personal experience has intensified rather than diminished that idea. After all, however, there is nothing like custom, for neither Builder nor his wife thought any more of the wolf than I should a dog. The animal itself was as peaceful and well-behaved as that father of all picture wolves, Red Riding Hood's quondam friend, whilst moving her confidence in masquerade. The whole scene was an unutterable mixture of comedy and pathos, wicked wolf that for half a day had paralyzed London and set all children in the town shivering in their shoes, was there in a sort of penitent mood, and was received and petted like a sort of vulpine prodigal son.
say it all along. Here's his head all cut and full of broken glass. He's been getting over some blooming wall or another. It's a shame that some people are out allowed to top their walls with broken bottles. This here's what comes of it. Come along, Bersicker. He took the wolf and locked him up in a cage with a piece of meat that satisfied, in quantity at any rate, the elementary conditions of the fatted calf and went off to report. I came off, too, to report the only exclusive information that is given today regarding the strange escapade at the zoo. Dr. Seward's Diary, 17th of September I was engaged after dinner in my study posting up my books, which, through press of other work and the many visits to Lucy, had fallen sadly into arrear. Suddenly, the door was burst open, and in rushed my patient, with his face distorted with passion. I was thunderstruck for such a thing as a patient getting of his own accord into the superintendent's study is almost unknown. Without an instant's pause, he made straight at me. He had a dinner knife in his hand, and as I saw he was dangerous, I tried to keep the table between us. He was too quick and too strong for me, however, for before I could get my balance, he had struck at me and cut my left wrist rather severely. Before he could strike again, however, I got in my right and he was sprawling on his back on the floor. My wrist bled freely and quite a little pull trickled onto the carpet. I saw that my friend was not intent on further effort and occupied myself binding up my wrist, keeping a wary eye on the prostrate figure all the time. When the attendants rushed in and we turned our attention to him, his employment positively sickened me. He was lying on his belly on the floor, licking up like a dog the blood which had fallen from my wounded wrist. He was easily secured, and, to my surprise, went with the attendants quite placidly, simply repeating over and over again, The blood is the life, the blood is the life. I cannot afford to lose blood just at present. I have lost too much of late for my physical good and then the prolonged strain of Lucy's illness and its horrible phases is telling on me. I am overexcited and weary, and I need rest, rest, rest. Happily, Van Helsing has not summoned me, so I need not forego my sleep. Tonight I could not well do without it. Telegram, Van Helsing, Antwerp to Seward, Carfax. Sent to Carfax, Sussex, as no county given, delivered late by twenty-two hours. 17th of September. Do not fail to be at Hillingham tonight. If not watching all the time, frequently visit and see that flowers are placed. Very important. Do not fail. She'll be with you as soon as possible after arrival. Dr. Seward's Diary, 18th of September. Just off for train to London. The arrival of Van Helsing's telegram filled me with dismay. A whole night lost, and I know by bitter experience what may happen in a night. 
Of course, it is possible that all may be well, but what may have happened? Surely there is some horrible doom hanging over us that every possible accident should thwart us in all we try to do. I shall take the cylinder with me, and then I can complete my entry on Lucy's phonograph. Memorandum left by Lucy Westenra, 17th of September, night. I write this and leave it to be seen so that no one may by any chance get into any trouble through me. This is an exact record of what took place tonight. I feel I am dying of weakness and have barely strength to write, but it must be done if I die in the doing. I went to bed as usual, taking care that the flowers were placed as Dr. Van Helsing directed, and soon fell asleep. I was waked by the flapping at the window, which had begun after that sleepwalking on the cliff at Whitby when Mina saved me, and which now I know so well. I was not afraid, but I did wish that Dr. Seward was in the next room, as Dr. Van Helsing said he would be, so that I might have called him. I tried to go to sleep, but could not. Then there came to me the old fear of sleep, and I determined to keep awake. Perversely, sleep would try to come then when I did not want it. So, as I feared to be alone, I opened my door and called out, Is there anybody there? There was no answer. I was afraid to wake mother, and so closed my door again. Then, outside in the shrubbery, I heard a sort of howl like a dog's, but more fierce and deeper. I went to the window and looked out, but could see nothing except a big bat, which had evidently been buffeting its wings against the window. So I went back to bed again, but determined not to go to sleep. Presently the door opened, and Mother looked in, seeing by my moving that I was not asleep, came in and sat by me. She said to me even more sweetly and softly than her wont, I was uneasy about you, darling, and came in to see that you were all right. I feared she might catch cold sitting there, and asked her to come in and sleep with me, so she came into bed and lay down beside me. She did not take off her dressing gown, for she said she would only stay a while and then go back to her own bed. As she lay there in my arms, and I in hers, the flapping and buffeting came to the window again. She was staring, startled and a little frightened, and cried out, What is that? I tried to pacify her, and at last succeeded, as she lay quiet, but I could hear their poor dear heart still beating terribly. After a while, there was a low howl again, out in the shrubbery, and shortly after, there was a crash at the window, and a lot of broken glass was hurled on the floor. The window blind blew, blew back with the wind that rushed in, and in the aperture of the broken panes there was the head of a great, gaunt, gray wolf. Mother cried out in a fright and struggled up, into a sitting posture and clutched wildly at anything that would help her. Amongst other things, she clutched the wreath of flowers that Dr. Van Helsing insisting on my wearing around my neck, and tore it away from me. For a second or two she sat up, pointing at the wolf, and there was a strange and horrible gurgling in her throat, 
Then she fell over as if struck with lightning, and her head hit my forehead and made me dizzy for a moment or two. The room and all around seemed to spin round. I kept my eyes fixed on the window, but the wolf drew his head back, and a whole myriad of little specks seemed to come blowing in through the broken window, and wheeling and circling round like a pillar of dust that travelers describe when there is a simum in the desert. I tried to stir, but there was some spell upon me, and dear mother's poor body, which seemed to grow cold already, for her dear heart has ceased to beat, weighed me down, and I remembered no more for a while. The time did not seem long, but very, very awful, till I recovered consciousness again. Somewhere near, a passing bell was tolling. The dogs all around the neighborhood were howling, and in our shrubbery, seemingly just outside, a nightingale was singing. I was dazed and stupid with pain and terror and weakness, but the sound of the nightingale seemed like the voice of my dead mother come back to comfort me. The sound seemed to have awakened the maids, too, for I could hear their bare feet pattering outside my door. I called to them, and they came in, and when they saw what had happened, and what it was that lay over me on the bed, they screamed out. The wind rushed in through the broken window, and the door slammed, too. They lifted off the body of my dear mother, and laid her, covered up with a sheet, on the bed after I had got up. They were all so frightened and nervous that I directed them to go to the dining room and each have a glass of wine. The door flew open for an instant and closed again. The maids shrieked and then went in a body to the dining room, and I laid what flowers I had on my dear mother's breast. When they were there, I remembered what Dr. Van Helsing had told me, but I didn't like to remove them, and, besides, I would have some of the servants to sit up with me now. I was surprised that the maids did not come back. I called for them, but got no answer, so I went to the dining room to look for them. My heart sank when I saw what happened. They all four lay helpless on the floor, breathing heavily. The decanter of sherry was on the table half full, but there was a queer, acrid smell about. I was suspicious and examined the decanter. It smelt of laudanum. And looking on the sideboard, I found that the bottle which Mother's doctor uses for her, oh, did use, was empty. What am I to do? What am I to do? I am back in the room with Mother. I cannot leave her, and I am alone, save for the sleeping servants, whom someone has drugged. Alone with the dead, I dare not go out, for I can hear the low howl of the wolf through the broken window. The air seems full of specks, floating and circling in the drought from the window, and the lights burn blue and dim. What am I to do? God shield me from harm this night. I shall hide this paper in my breast, where they shall find it when they come to lay me out. My dear mother gone, it is time that I go too. Goodbye, dear Arthur. If I should not survive this night, God keep you dear and God help me.
Alice Tillingham and arrived early. Keeping my cab at the gate, I went up the avenue alone. I knocked gently and rang as quietly as possible, for I feared to disturb Lucy or her mother, and hoped to only bring a servant to the door. After a while, finding no response, I knocked and rang again, still no answer. I cursed the laziness of the servants that they should lie abed at such an hour, for it was now ten o'clock, and so rang and knocked again, but more impatiently, but still without response. Hitherto I had blamed only the servants, but now a terrible fear began to assail me. Was this desolation but another link in the chain of doom which seemed drawing tight around us? Was it indeed a house of death to which I had come too late? I knew that minutes, even seconds, of delay might mean hours of danger to Lucy if she had had again one of those frightful relapses, and I went around the house to try if I could find by chance an entry anywhere. I could find no means of ingress. Every window and door was fastened and locked, and I returned baffled to the porch. As I did so, I heard the rapid pit-pat of a swiftly driven horse's feet. They stopped at the gate, and a few seconds later, I met Van Helsing running up the avenue. When he saw me, he gasped out. Then it was you, and just arrived. How is she? Are we too late? Did you get my telegram? I answered as quickly and coherently as I could that I had only got his telegram early in the morning and had not lost a minute in coming here, and that I could not make anyone in the house hear me. He paused and raised his hand as he said solemnly, Then I fear we are too late. God's will be done. With his usual recuperative energy he went on, Come, if there is be, if there be no way open to get in, we must make one. Time is all in all to us now. We went round to the back of the house, where there was a kitchen window. The professor took a small surgical saw from his case, and, handing it to me, pointed to the iron, iron bars which guarded the window. I attacked them at once, and had very soon cut through three of them. Then, with a long, thin knife, we pushed back the fastening of the sashes, and opened the window. I helped the professor in, and followed him. There was no one in the kitchen, or in the servants' rooms, which were close at hand. We tried all the rooms as we went along, and in the dining room, dimly lit by rays of light through the shutters, found four servant women lying on the floor. There was no need to think them dead, for their stertorous breathing the acrid smell of laudanum in the room left no doubt as to their condition. Then Elsing and I looked at each other. As we moved away, he said, We can attend to them later. Then we ascended to Lucy's room. For an instant or two, we paused at the door to listen, but there was no sound that we could hear. With white faces and trembling hands, we opened the door gently and entered the room. How shall I describe what we saw? On the bed lay two women, Lucy and her mother. The latter lay farthest in, and 
she was covered with a white sheet, the edge of which had been blown back by the drought through the broken window, showing the drawn white face with a look of terror fixed upon it. By her side lay Lucy, with face white and still more drawn. The flowers which had been round her neck were found upon her mother's bosom, and her throat was bare, showing the two little wounds which we had noticed before, but looking horribly white and mangled. Without a word, the professor bent over the bed, his head almost touching poor Lucy's breast. Then he gave a quick turn of his head as one who listens, and leaping to his feet, he cried out to me, It is not yet too late. Quick, quick, bring the brandy. I flew downstairs and returned with it, taking care to smell and taste it, lest it, too, were drugged like the decanter of sherry which I found on the table. The maids were still breathing, but more restlessly, restlessly, and I fancied that the narcotic was wearing off. I did not stay to make sure, but returned to Van Helsing. He rubbed the brandy, as on another occasion, on her lips and gums, and on her wrists and the palms of her hands. He said to me, I can do this, all that can be at the present. You go wake those maids, flick them in the face with a wet towel, and flick them hard, make them get heat and fire in a warm bath. This poor soul is nearly as cold as that beside her. She will need to be heated before we can do anything more. I went at once and found little difficulty in waking three of the women. The fourth was only a young girl, and the drug had evidently affected her more strongly, so I lifted her on the sofa and let her sleep. The others were dazed at first, but as remembrance came back to them, they cried and sobbed in a hysterical manner. I was stern with them, however, and would not let them talk. I told them that one life was bad enough to lose, and that if they had delayed, they would sacrifice Miss Lucy. So, sobbing and crying, they went about their way, half clad as they were, and prepared fire and water. Fortunately, the kitchen and boiler fires were still alive, and there was no lack of hot water. We got a bath, and carried Lucy out, as she was, as she was, and placed her in it. Whilst we were busy chafing her limbs, there was a knock at the hall door. One of the maids ran off, hurried on some more clothes, and opened it. Then she returned and whispered to us that there was a gentleman who had come with a message from Mr. Holmwood. I bade her simply tell him that he must wait, for we could see no one now. She went away with the message, and engrossed with her work, I clean forgot all about it. I never saw in all my experience the professor work in such deadly earnest. I knew, as he knew, that it was a stand-up fight with death, and in a pause told him so. He answered me in a way that I did not understand, but with the sternest look that his face could wear. If that were all, I would stop here, where we are now, and let her fade away into peace for I see no light in life over her horizon. He went on with his work, with, if possible, renewed and more frenzied vigor.
Presently, we both began to be conscious that the heat was beginning to be of some effect. Lucy's heart began a trifle more audibly to the stethoscope, and her lungs had a perceptible movement. Then Elsing's face almost beamed, and as we lifted her from the bath and rolled her in a hot sheet to dry her, he said to me, The first gain is ours. Check to the king. into another room, which had by now been prepared, and laid her in bed, and forced a few drops of brandy down her throat. I noticed that Van Helsing tied a soft silk handkerchief around her throat. She was still unconscious, and quite as bad as, if not worse than, we ever had seen her. Van Helsing called in one of the women and told her to stay with her and not take her eyes off her till we returned, and then beckoned me out of the must consult as to what is to be done, he said, as we descended the stairs. In the hall, he opened the dining room door, and we passed in. As we and we passed in, he closing the door carefully behind him. The shutters had been opened, but the blinds were already down, with that obedience to the etiquette of death, which the British woman of the lower classes always always rigidly observes. The room was, therefore, dimly dark. It was, however, light enough for our purposes. Van Helsing's sternness was somewhat relieved by a look of perplexity. He was evidently torturing his mind about something, so I waited for an instant. And he spoke. What are we to do now? Where are we to turn for help? We must have another transfusion of blood, and that soon or that poor girl's life won't be worth an hour's purchase. You are exhausted already. I am exhausted, too. I fear to trust those women, even if they would have courage to submit. What are we to do for someone who will open his veins for her? What's the matter with me, anyhow? The voice came from the sofa across the room, and its tones brought relief and joy to my heart. For they were those of Quincy Morris. Van Helsing started angrily at the first sound, but his face softened and a glad look came to his eyes as I cried out, Quincy Morris, and rushed towards him with outstretched hands. What brought you here? I cried as our hands met. I guess art is the cause. He handed me a telegram. Have not heard from Seward for three days, and am terribly anxious. Cannot leave. Father still in same condition. Send me word how Lucy is. Do not delay. Holmwood. I think I came just in the nick of time. You know you have only to tell me what to do. Van Helsing strode forward and took his hand, looking him straight in the eyes as he said, A brave man's blood is the best thing on this earth when a woman is in trouble. You are a man and no mistake. Well, the devil may work against us for all he's worth, but God sends us men when we want them. Once again, we went through that ghastly operation. I have not the heart to go through with the details. Lucy had got a terrible shock and had told on her more than before, for though plenty of blood went into her veins, her body did not respond to the treatment as well as on the other occasions. Her struggle back into life was something frightful to see and hear. However, the action of both heart and lungs improved, and Van Helsing made a subcutaneous injection of morphia. 
as before and with good effect. Her faint became a profound slumber. The professor watched whilst I went downstairs with Quincy Morris and sent one of the maids to pay off one of the cabmen who were waiting. I left Quincy lying down after having a glass of wine and told the cook to get ready a good breakfast. Then a good thought struck me, and I went back into the room where Lucy now was. When I came softly in, I found Van Helsing with a sheet or two of note paper in his hand. He had evidently read it, and was thinking it over as he sat with his hand to his brow. There was a look of grim satisfaction in his face, as of one who has had a doubt solved. He handed me the paper, saying only, It dropped from Lucy's breast when we carried her to the bath. When I had read it, I stood looking at the professor, and after a pause asked him, In God's name, what does it all mean? Was she, or is she, mad, or what sort of horrible danger is it? I was so bewildered that I did not know what to say more. Van Helsing put out his hand and took the paper, saying, Do not trouble about it now. Forget it for the present. You shall know and understand it all in good time, but it will be later. And now, what is it that you came to me to say? This brought me back to fact, and I was all myself again. I came to speak about the certificate of death. If we do not act properly and wisely, there may be an inquest, and that paper would have to be produced. I am in hopes that we need have no inquest, for if we had it, would surely kill poor Lucy, if nothing else did. I know, and you know, and the other doctor who attended her knows, that Mrs. Westenra had disease of the heart, and we can certify that she died of it. Let us fill up the certificate at once, and I shall take it myself to the registrar and go on to the undertaker. Good old my friend John, well thought of. Truly, Miss Lucy, if she be sad in the foes that beset her, is at least happy in the friends that love her. One, two, three, all open their veins for her. Besides one old man, ah, yes, I know. Friend John, I am not blind. I love you all the more for it. Now go. In the hall, I met Quincy Morris with a telegram from Arthur telling him that Miss Westenra was dead, that Lucy also had been ill, but was now getting on better, and that Van Helsing and I were with her. I told him where I was going, and he hurried me out, but as I was going, said, When you come back, Jack, may I have two words with you, all to ourselves? I nodded in reply and went out. I found no difficulty about the registration and arranged with the local undertaker to come up in the evening to measure for the coffin and to make arrangements. When I got back, Quincy was waiting for me. I told him I would see him as soon as I knew about Lucy and went up to her room. She was still sleeping, and the professor seemingly had not moved from his seat at her side. From his putting his finger to his lips, I gathered that he expected her to wake before long, and was afraid of forestalling nature. So I went down to Quincy and took him into the breakfast room, where the blinds were not drawn 
Sing. 
understood what that meant, that she had realized to the full her mother's death, so we tried what we could to comfort her. Doubtless, sympathy eased her somewhat, but she was very low in thought and spirit, and wept silently and weakly for a long time. We told her that either or both of us would now remain with her all the time, and that seemed to comfort her. Towards dusk she fell into a doze. Here a very odd thing occurred. While still asleep, she took the paper from her breast and tore it in two. Van Helsing stepped over and took the pieces from her. All the same, however, she went on with the action of tearing, as though the material were still in her hands. Finally, she lifted her hands and opened them as though scattering the fragments. Van Helsing seemed surprised, and his brows gathered as if in thought, but he said nothing. Seems an age since I heard from you, or indeed. 
is your dear mother getting on? I wish I could run up to town for a day or two to see you, dear, but I dare not go yet, with so much on my shoulders, and Jonathan wants looking after still. He is beginning to put some flesh on his bones again, but he was terribly weakened by the long illness. Even now, he sometimes starts out of his sleep in a sudden way and awakes all trembling until I can coax him back to his usual placidity. However, thank God, these occasions grow less frequent as the days go on, and they will in time pass away altogether, I trust. And now I have told you my news. Let me ask yours. When are you to be married, and where, and who is to perform the ceremony, and what are you to wear, and is it to be a public or a private wedding? Tell me all about it, dear. Tell me all about everything, for there is nothing which interests you.
Stop. 
Some may not think it's so sad for us, but we had both come to so love him that it really seems as though we had lost a father. I never knew either father or mother, so the dear old man's death is a real blow to me. Jonathan is greatly distressed. It is not only that he feels sorrow, deep sorrow, for the dear good man who has befriended him all his life, and now at the end has treated him like his own son and left him in a fortune, to which to people of our modest bringing up as wealth beyond the dream of avarice. But Jonathan feels it on another account. He says the amount of responsibility which it puts upon him makes him nervous. He begins to doubt himself. I tried to cheer him up, and my belief in him helps him to have a belief in himself. But it is here that the grave shock that he experienced tells upon him the most. Oh, it is too hard that a sweet, simple, noble, strong nature such as his, a nature which enabled him by our dear, good friend's aid to rise from clerk to master in a few years, should be so injured that the very essence of his strength is gone. Forgive me, dear, if I worry you with my troubles in the midst of your own happiness. But, Lucy, dear, I must tell someone, for the strain of keeping up a brave and cheerful appearance to Jonathan tries me, and I have no one here I can confide in. I dread coming up to London, as we must do the day after tomorrow, for poor Mr. Hawkins left in his will that he was to be buried in the grave with his father. As there are no relations at all, Jonathan will have to be chief mourner. I shall try to run over to see you, dearest, if only for a few minutes. Forgive me for troubling you. With all blessings, your loving Mina Harker. Dr. Seward's Diary, 20th of September Only resolution and habit can let me make an entry tonight. I am too miserable, too low-spirited, too sick of the world, all in it, including life itself, that I would not care if I heard this moment the flapping of the wings of the angel of death. And he has been flapping those grim wings to some purpose of late. Lucy's mother and Arthur's father, and now let me get on with my work. I duly relieved Van Helsing in his watch over Lucy. We wanted Arthur go to rest also, but he refused at first. It was only when I told him that we should want him to help us during the day, and that we must not all break down for want of rest, lest Lucy's should suffer, so that he agreed to go. Van Helsing was very kind to him. Come, my child, he said, come with me. You are sick and weak, and have had much sorrow and much mental pain as well that tax on your strength that we know of. You must not be alone, for to be alone is to be full of fears and alarms. Come to the drawing room, where there is a big fire and there are two sofas. You shall lie on one, and I on the other, and our sympathy will be a comfort to each other, even though we do not speak, and even if we sleep. Arthur went off with him, casting back a longing look on Lucy's face, which lay on her pillow whiter than the lawn. She lay quite still, and I looked around the room to see that all was as it should be. I could see that the professor had carried out in his room, as in the other, his purpose of using the garlic, the 
buried 
led him away to the drawing room where he sat down and covered his face in his hands, sobbing in a way that nearly broke me down to see. I went back to the room and found Van Helsing looking at poor Lucy, and his face was sterner than ever. Some change had come over her body. Death had given back part of her beauty, for her brow and cheeks had recovered some of their flowing lines. Even the lips had lost their deadly pallor. It was as if the blood, no longer needed for the working of the heart, had gone to make the harshness of death as little rude as might be. We thought her dying whilst she slept, and sleeping when she died. I stood beside Van Helsing and said, Ah, oh, well, poor girl. There is peace for her at last. It is the end. He turned to me and said with grave solemnity, Not so, alas, not so. It's only the beginning. When I asked him what he meant, he only shook his head and answered, We can do nothing as yet. Wait and see. Listening to the Book Whisperer. Listen in tomorrow night for chapters 13 through 16. Good night. <laughs>